Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody. It is Friday. It is 1 o'clock here on the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. I'm your host, Josh Carter, and uh, I'm back. Welcome, uh, Carmen. Welcome, everybody. And Josh, we're glad to have you back. You've been gone for... Uh, three episodes, so I'm excited that you're here today. It feels it feels a lot longer. Uh, yeah, I was so really overwhelmed by work, but things have settled down thankfully, so I'm back and I'm really excited to be here. So, uh, and the nice thing is we have two guests, Navy veterans of all people, and I'm so excited. Every time we talk to Navy people, I'm just uh, I'm just so excited because that's the, that's what I can speak the best. So, uh, we have Zach Shield and Drew Dewalt from Roombix. Welcome, guys. Welcome, Zach hey. and Drew. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining. We are really excited to, to dig in and learn more about uh, you both and your service, as well as digging in a bit about what, what Roombix does. But uh, first and foremost, uh, let's talk a little bit. Give us your, like, 30-second, this is who I am. And we'll start with Drew. Yeah, so this is Drew DeWalt. Um, I am the co-founder and CEO of Rumbix, and got here a long way. Started out in Waco, Texas, uh, growing up in a family of military veterans. My dad flew in the Air Force, older brother flies AC-130s in the Air Force. Uh, so knew I wanted to do that and, and took the path of Navy ROTC through the University of Notre Dame and then joined the submarine force and spent some years underwater in a submarine in the Pacific um, before going to business school where Zach and I crossed paths. Wow. I was just going to ask uh, where you're from and all that. So that's a question we typically, I typically like to ask and what took you into the military. So uh, Zach, yeah, yeah, and you probably have a 30 second as well, but you know, you guys can elaborate all you want in terms <laughs> of your background, where you're from and what took you into the military. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, my name is Zach Scheel, co-founder and CEO of Rumbix. Um, and so I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, joined the military, applied for um, ROTC scholarships um, about a month after September 11th. Uh, I was a senior in high school at the time, uh, December of uh, 2001. I uh, ended up getting um, um, a full ride to Duke University uh, through the Navy ROTC program. So. Uh, ended up spending the next four years uh, down in North Carolina, uh, gained my commission uh, through the Navy ROTC program there. Uh, did five years in the CBs, uh, Navy Civil Engineer Corps, um, before uh, getting out and heading to Stanford uh, for business school. Did a dual degree in, in construction, and uh, that's where I met Drew, and um, then started Rumbix straight after graduation from uh, graduate school. Wow. Impressive. Yeah, definitely. I, and that, that's a lot of companies get started that way. Like you meet them at somewhere like a business school or shipmates in, in the Navy or what. But what was sort of the um, what is sort of the thing that connected you both that said this is the solution that we wanted to to look at? 
Yeah, well, in the summer of 2013, we were both working on different construction projects uh, in Chile, uh, in South America, of all places. So uh, I was working at a a large copper concentrator expansion at at the world's largest copper mine. And Drew actually was was doing his first startup, uh, which was a um, a solar and pumped hydro power plant. he was trying to estimate labor costs for project finance, and I was managing uh, labor cost overruns on the project that I was on. And um, so we, we grabbed beers uh, down in Chile in, in summer of 2013, and that was really the first uh, first time we started talking about this this big problem of just a real lack of visibility and, and understanding of what work's done every day on construction job sites. Um, and then, you know, started having more and more conversations over the course of the next six months till we decided to, uh, to co-found Rumbix together. That's awesome. I, I love the sort of origin story for that. So when you, when you guys started talking about what this was going to be, how, what was that? Talk us through that, that conversation, because I think a lot of folks uh, that want to start a business, they know they probably need to bring in a co-founder, right? Starting a business by yourself is really difficult. So how did that, talk, walk us through that conversation and how you guys decided who was going to do what role, how it was going to be divided, how you guys were going to split shares, et cetera. How was that all determined? Yeah, so um, before uh, Drew and I were both down in Chile, um, we had the opportunity to take a class together at Stanford. That's uh, one of its uh, the flagship classes at the business school. It's, it's called Interpersonal Dynamics, or more affectionately known as, as Touchy-Feely. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the class. Touchy-Feely. Touchy-Feely, exactly. Lots of roots in like, social psychology and um, it's structured in a way that uh, over the course of a 10-week quarter, we spent about 70 hours as part of a, a 12-person group uh, where there's a lot of heated, heated conversations and, and discussions all related to interpersonal dynamics. Um, and so we had a, a tremendous amount of data points on each other uh, that, you know, in December 2013, um, when we were you know, deciding to co-found the company together. Uh, I think we both had enough uh, data points from that shared experience that gave us a level of comfort that we would want to co-found uh, a company with, with each other. Um, and then over the course of the kind of three to four months that followed us deciding to co-found together, it was just a, a series of lots of conversations and discussions, really identifying swim lanes and who was going to do what roles, what, what activities, uh, within the company, and how important do you think it is for you guys to have that you guys had that conversation now, and and how does it mitigate problems today? I mean, it's just one of those things where it was definitely impressed upon us, and you saw it, we saw it obviously in our early careers in the military that um, you can make a lot of assumptions about what somebody else is thinking or doing or intending, and unless you actually talk about it, those assumptions can be wrong, and so it's just tackle those potentially uncomfortable, difficult conversations early before uh, sometimes they can get out of control. And I think what we found is because of that, the sooner we have those conversations, the sooner uh, we move on past it. And it's kept a really healthy relationship uh, over the last five years, which is crazy. Um, You know, we still don't always see eye to eye on things, but through that, you build a professional respect for each other's opinions, uh, and that's that's the way that you work well together. 
Yeah, and I could imagine, you know, that kind of dives into the emotional intelligence factor, you know, where, you know, that's so important and vital to try to be resilient because uh, that's what's really going to drive success in relationships at work. Yeah, and the other thing, I, you, what, I, what I think is interesting is you guys have this really good culture in your community, in your company, and and one of that is you've set it in your website, right? So if you go to the roombix.com and you go check out your mission, it's uh, workers first, uh, trust and transparency, gains and message to Garcia, which I'm totally going to ask you about, but I wanted to understand like how important was it for you guys to set specific goals within your culture, and how has that helped you as you grow? Yeah, it, it, it's one of the most important things we've done, and one of the things that um, I attribute a lot of our success to, um, you know, specifically with uh, within what's a very tight labor market right now and, and very much a talent war for, for high quality employees. Uh, the, our culture really sets us apart in terms of our ability to um, attract, recruit, hire and retain um, all-star talent. Uh, but it, it started at the earliest days of Rumbix. I, I think, um, you know, as, as early as six, seven employees in the company, we were starting to have discussions around culture. And I think that stems from um, one of the things I, I definitely remember uh, one of our professors impressing upon us at business school was um, your company is going to have a culture. Uh, you can either be prescriptive about it or not. Uh, but if you're not, you're going to be left with whatever culture forms as, as a result. And so early on, Drew and I were equally excited um, about the opportunity to build an awesome company and culture as, as we were about the problem we were solving in the construction space. And so, um, you know, we're very, very proactive and prescriptive and having all hands discussions, um, um, you know, open forums, really discussing this concept of, of uh, company culture. and. The values that are reflected by our four core values uh, were values that uh, came out of you know a series of, of numerous one and two hour long all hand sessions, uh, really talking about you know uh, people, process, and products within the company, and, and what kind of qualities and characteristics define those, and then our values fell out of that. And message to Garcia, what is that in reference to? <laughs> That's uh, you know, again, there were actions, uh, decisions, and just um, behavior that we want to encourage in our company. And then again, we, when you look around, a lot of company culture and values can really end up just being platitudes. It's, it's words that sound great, but don't really resonate within your company. So we wanted to make sure that they were um, not only sort of sentiments and actions that we wanted to, to inculcate in our employee base and our team, but also the, the words that we would use to do that so that they're actually referenced and they're actually lived. And so um, when we took a hard look and went through um, the exercise with our smaller company at the time of what really rang true with them and, and came up with four um, core values, then we tried to describe names to them that also resonated with folks. And so Message Garcia was a good example that we use. Obviously, if you're a, a naval officer, you've definitely heard it before, um, and it really is a way to summarize. It's a, it's a great story um, that is basically a summary of, um, you know, we talk a lot about, about just get shit done, 
Um, we don't want to micromanage the folks on our team. And so it's really a message that says, hey, come to us with solutions, not problems, right? Um, a lot of times in leadership or in being in a company, folks can come in and say, I got this problem. And it's sort of like, hey, can you fix it for me? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that, that fundamentally is a story is you identify the problem, then do those next steps, right? The best, the best answer on the back end of Message Garcia is I had this problem. Here's the three things I thought about doing. I chose this one and I solved the problem and I'm just letting you know. Yeah, you know um, what's interesting is Twilio does that too. They have this, and, and that's why I asked about it because uh, Twilio has these great nine things, and one of them is draw the owl. And it was be, because the CEO Jeff Lawson saw this meme on online, and it was uh, you know step one draw two circles, and the next step was draw the rest of the fucking owl. And really, the message was was go figure it out. And so that when I read that, I was like, man, that's so cool that there's another company out there that has their sort of like. It's not really an inside joke, but it's it's one of those things that are clearly in context of their experience. Absolutely. So we're going to do a quick uh, commercial break. Is that cool, guys? Sounds good. All right. We're going to talk about CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com forward slash startup radio. Go ahead, Carmen. Yes. So I have a question, uh, Zach, Andrew. Can you give us a practical example in terms of uh, what types of actions you took in your company so that you can influence the behavior of your employees? Um, Yeah, it'd, it'd be nice to get a little bit more granular. Uh, influence the behavior in what respect? Well, uh, one of you was sharing, uh, you know, uh, the... I think it's how uh, you set up the culture, right? Yeah, in the culture. It's in terms of the culture of the company. So, because culture can mean a lot of things, and culture is really driven by values. And so I just thought it'd be kind of nice to hear uh, an example of something you did at your company uh, to cultivate the culture you want. And and, and if you were to, to describe the culture, uh, just give us, you know, a couple of sentences as, uh, as to how you would summarize the culture in your company. Yeah. So um, as was mentioned, we've got kind of four core company values that really form the foundation of the culture. Um, one is workers first. That's really our, our common purpose that we rally around. Uh, another is gains. Uh, that's really focused on continuous improvement. Uh, both within our company, within the product we make, but also how that uh, drives uh, continuous improvement on the job sites where our products use. Um, a third is message to Garcia that we talked about, which is around uh, empowered execution at the lowest rungs of the ladder. Uh, and then the fourth and, and then final one is, is trust and tra- transparency. Um, and so, you know, we, we firmly believe that uh, a high level of trust and transparency are, are paramount for an early stage startup that needs to be very adaptive and responsive. And so one of the things we do every Monday morning is uh, what we call a uh, operations and intelligence brief. And it was based on the O&I briefs that General McChrystal used to uh, um, do every day to tens of thousands of people from around the globe. And so what we do is we're, we're pushing out information um, and, and some of this information includes cash runway uh, for the company and, and when we're gonna run out of cash. and. 
you know, that's something that I, I don't think a lot of startups um, make every employee in their company aware of. Um, but, but you know, one of the ways we influence uh, behaviors is really um, leading by example um, and saying, hey, like everyone here is an adult and a professional. Uh, here's where the runway ends. Here's where the sidewalk ends. We, we need to be at this point six to eight months in advance of there wow. uh, to, to hit our milestones and uh, creating that level of transparency enables the rest of the things to take place where people are able to make empowered decisions at a lower rung of the ladder because they know uh, the additional context around what's going on within the company beyond their department or organization. Yeah, that doesn't happen anywhere. Why, why did you guys make that decision and how do you think it impacts the way people work every day? It's just like, right, you hire, you spend a lot of time hiring good people, yeah. smart people, you trust them. And then if you don't give them the information and transparency, they can't do their best work, right? Sure. And so it's, I mean, we've had, you know, startups can be a roller coaster and, and you can go a lot of ups and downs in the five years that we've been doing this. And so I still remember at a, at a particularly stressful time of the company, everybody's feeling the stress. Um, and I think as a, and that's what you get when you're transparent. I think quite a few companies will, um, will sort of shield uh, the average employee from what's going on and they're you know sitting there fat and happy with a smile on their face when when Rome is burning down right. uh, and that you know most people don't want to be babied and sheltered like that they want to be professionally involved you join join an early stage company because you want to in many ways learn how to build a company and so I, I just remember that stressful time my the natural reaction as a leader is to say something that will, relieve the stress. And I just remember having this realization and telling the whole team that, listen, you're stressed right now. And the reason is because it's a stressful time in the company and you're feeling it because we share with you because we would prefer to have, you know, 45, 50 very smart people thinking about how do we overcome these challenges than just two people in a room by themselves. And so the fact that you're feeling stress means that we trust you and we also expect you to help us get through this tough patch. And when you're just so stark with that, it, ironically, that actually relieves some stress because everybody sees the stress um, as a healthy thing because we're building a company and it's not easy. Well, I think part of it, too, is as a founder, and I've founded a few startups myself, is that you tend to go through these journeys alone, right? But by sharing it, you, now you're sharing with the journey everybody that's going through the company with you. So part of it is probably, it, you know, you guys aren't realizing it, but you guys are sharing the burden with others so that probably you guys don't have to feel the burden yourselves. Does that make sense? And building loyalty. Sure. Do you feel that you, you, you have that loyalty where, you know, sharing all of this information, the outcome was? wasn't that they left the company, but that they were willing to stick it out with you? Absolutely. Loyalty, it, it, it breeds camaraderie because, um, you know, that engineer is able to tie the work he or she does directly to the product that the sales team is uh, selling directly to the product that the customer success and implementation team is deploying on job sites. And, you know, having a shared knowledge of what are the different difficulties that each of the departments are running into at any given point in time uh, helps create accountability and, and camaraderie across uh, individual organizations, which again, within an, an early stage startup, you, you need everyone rowing in the same direction at the same cadence, or you're just going to be dead in the water. It probably helps 
people be a bit more creative too. So to your point, you have this engineer who's working on product. They understand what the runway is. Maybe they're thinking about, you know, I have this friend who's in construction. I bet you they could utilize Roombix. I should give them a call. Whereas if you weren't maybe that transparent, they'd be like, I know that person in construction, but you know, maybe I'll pass it off to a salesperson. I won't be very aggressive. I'm just going to do my work. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. We we had um, uh, a pretty major overhaul of our entire uh, web app back end, and uh, the suggestion for the new schema moving forward was one that an engineer came to us and said, hey, I, I don't know the construction industry like you guys know it, but it seems like the problem that you guys are trying to solve could be better handled by designing our system this other way. Um, and it's one of the things that really help, um, um, you know, enable our product to be scaled to the next level. Um, and, and that's something that came from, you know, a, an engineer that was writing the code. Um, and, and that was one of the best ideas we've had in the company. So you guys conceived the idea and then you um, get, um, engaged other folks to develop and uh, do the product design and uh, product uh, software development of the product then? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we, Drew and I um, had really uh, a huge passion for solving this problem, you know, which is... Uh, helping improve production and labor productivity and construction, the world's second largest industry, you know, behind only food production. Um, and, and it's an industry that's had um, actually declining levels of productivity over the course of the last 50 and 60 years. And so um, we came at, you know, uh, attacking a large problem in a massive industry. Um, and then the original idea was actually utilizing um, smart watches uh, to try to uh, collect biomotion from a dominant hand, combine that with a GPS breadcrumb, cross-reference with a schedule of activities to try to passively detect work completion. So we've pivoted a lot of times to get where we are today, which is really a single source of truth for field data on job sites, replacing paper and Excel and driving a lot of advanced analytics. Um, and so we've, we've provided um, basically the, the vision and the direction of attacking this large problem. But as far as designing the product and building the product, that's been a team effort from our designers, our product managers, our engineers, our salespeople contributing feedback on, here's what I think the market needs to build for truly product market fit. You know, I'm, I'm having these calls every day. I'm hearing this request time and time again. And so uh, I would say more than anything, Drew and I provide the direction and the leadership uh, to get there, but uh, largely the, the products requirements um, are, are the, the result of the entire team's efforts. And how much has your product pivoted or changed since those early days, would you say? <laughs> uh, everybody knows that my pet peeve is uh, not to talk about pivots. I feel like pivots are when, you know, if we transition to be a food delivery startup, that'd be a pretty aggressive pivot. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I see it as a constant process of... Sure. Um, seeing the target in mind and finding the best way to achieve it. So our, our final goal that Zach laid out of uh, fundamentally shifting and improving labor productivity and construction and leading to better project outcomes, that hasn't changed in five years. How we solve that has changed over time. But, you know, we talked about early on the wearables. That was a goal to fully automate everything. Um, and then we went to uh, a much more sort of intrusive 
way of recording the information uh, that required a lot of interaction from folks on the field to get the exact right answer right from the start. And then we realized, you know what, like candidly, the construction industry, a, a less eloquent way of saying uh, what our epiphany moment for the business was, uh, actually was just kind of sick of being on large projects and realizing that nobody really had any idea what was going on from day to day. How can we solve that? And the really fundamental philosophical underpinning right now is that good data now is much better than perfect data late to keep projects on site. And when we share the good data now to everybody on the job site, such that you get um, everybody working from the same version of the truth, and then as data gets better, gets edited, gets approved along the lines, everybody is still seeing the most recent and up-to-date versions of that information. So we're all collaborating around um, the same set of information. And right now the construction industry is a completely document-based business. So the only way to get information out of a document is to access that document. And we're leading that fundamental shift over to a data-centric industry and that's, you know, again, we have arrived at that through a lot of different twists and turns, but at the end of the day, it's always been in service of that higher goal. And we're not scared to make big changes if it's going to be to the benefit of our customers and our product uh, and the industry at large. What do you think was your biggest learning in that process? Like, you, you, and I think, and I'm asking this specifically because I we developed products as, as a startup founder, and I think one of the biggest lessons we took away was don't try to perfect it, just get it out there, and the, the, the community will tell you what they don't like about it. What do you think was your biggest learning from that process of the early iterations of Rumix to getting it to where you were starting to see more value out of the out of the platform yeah i mean for me personally to zach i think um you know the biggest kind of learning um was where to draw the line between uh visionary and where your customer is grounded in reality mm -hmm. um and and you know when we started off with wearables and and gps location sensing like the technology existed to be able to do um, to passively uh, detect work completion uh, doing that. But um, that was something that even today there are new companies trying to do that and the industry still doesn't accept. This is this is four or five years after the fact. And so um, it was really, um, you know, learning the importance of uh, really truly understanding where your buyers are in terms of where that 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 market is so that when you're designing the product um, it, it has fit with it and you aren't just missing the forest for the trees nice we've been talking to Zach and drew from Rubix. I think Carmen you you're gonna talk about publicize right right today's episode of the veteran startup is brought to you by publicize a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business media relations publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this. Press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR 
package right for the future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. I like the construct the PR yeah. piece. We're talking to Rumix, who is a great platform if you run a large construction project. And, I, and you know, I, I have a whole slew of questions because, I mean, I don't know a lot about the construction business, but I do know quite a bit about project management, and I'm actually uh, uh, went to PMP, uh, the Project Management in- Institute, for six. Uh, I did their program, graduated from that, and there were uh, construction folks in it, but I did it for IT. So I guess my question is you were, you know, so if a project is handled correctly, managed correctly, and tracked, um, you know, what is it that was missing, the missing piece there that um, I wanted to kind of understand better when you mentioned that in construction there's declining levels of productivity and you needed better project outcomes. Can you can you give me like even just if it were a home, for instance, on a smaller scale. Can you give an example of that? Because I want to try to understand what is it that your product will do. Uh, yeah, I think that um, it's a ahead. great question. And really at Rumbix, you got to like dial it in a little bit. We don't do residential construction. We do large. Okay, large large business, commercial yeah. Commercial construction. And that's, that's the fundamental premise, right? On a small enough project, if you have a good management team and workers you trust, which you can find a lot of that in construction, you can manage that project. But at a certain scale, the best teams that are the most capable, there's still huge blind spots because all the information they're waiting for comes in. Candidly, it starts out on some in somebody's head, then on a notebook, gets collected weekly, then gets aggregated and analyzed another week and then handed off to somebody else. And so by the time you on a, on a large project get some sort of analysis of how you're doing, it's three, four, five week old information. So you're fundamentally being reactive instead of proactive. And so that's what we really fix is the first line of communication of what's going on in the field. We put a super easy to use mobile uh, application in that user's hand, the foreman or crew leader. And so as soon as anything happens, it is digitized in a standard and it's available to folks. And so you're looking at daily progress as opposed to the progress of a day three to four weeks ago. Yeah, and I I can give a concrete example. So at the Copper Concentrator Project, um, it was around a 7,000 craft workforce at any given point in time. Uh, there was like 3,500 workers working a day shift and a similar number working a night shift. So every day we were collecting around 1,000 paper time cards. Um, it took three to four days to uh, have a 70-person clerical staff um, translate that to English and put it into Excel where it was sent to a Microsoft Access database where then I began to audit the information. And about 80% of the next week was spent cleaning up the data. It was very error prone because of the uh, manual nature of data collection and data entry, and really only spent about 20% of the time analyzing it for insights to have once a week meeting with two week old data. Um, and and that's, that's pretty common on large construction projects because of just how big they are. Um, the 
until you know Rumbix and, and delivering a really uh, easy to use mobile first uh, way to capture that data, um, there would, you would have uh, batching of information and so you were never able to really understand in real time what was going on on these large project sites. You always, has, always had a snapshot of, of really where were we two weeks ago and, and that's not a good way. There's, there's a reason 98% of construction projects are either late or over budget and that's, that's not a good uh, not a good statistic for us in the industry in terms of project delivery. Great. Thank you for explaining that. So who gets to carry the, um, who utilizes the mobile devices? Let's say you're on a big construction project and who actually um, would be tracking all that data uh, live um, and then entering it for real time use? Yeah, it's, it's the foreman. So the foreman is the first uh, level of management up from the, the crew itself. Um, and so this individual is responsible for doing daily, uh, weekly time cards is, is kind of the status quo on paper. So um, if you're lucky, they, um, you know, they're, they're writing down in a little black notebook that they keep in their pocket what happened all week. And then again, transcribing that on Friday onto a time card. Oftentimes you'll hear the guys and gals just say, hey, I, I just remember what happened all week and then write it down on Friday. Um, and so instead of a weekly data dump on paper, we're having daily real-time entry of that information. And what we find is that as soon as we teach the workers how to do how to use the system, you, you would not be able to pay them to go back to paper and pencil. They love the fact that they're not having to remember things all week. They're not having to constantly take notes. Uh, something happens, they get it into the Rumix platform. Um, they know that that's already been brought to the attention of the project management uh, team, the uh, the field supervision. Um, and and it's really kind of shifting, um, you know, the, um, the, the way jobs operate away from micromanagement of the craft to really the craft being able to better communicate the nature of what they need out in the field so that the project managers and superintendents can support them uh, ensuring they have the right materials, equipment, and, and crews and approved drawings to, to proceed with work. Okay, so so that means you can track other things like uh, you have missing material or uh, you need some equipment that's not there then. Yeah, we, we essentially replace paper and Excel on job sites uh, and are able to track everything um, primarily related to labor equipment and materials on projects. Awesome. The, the, I'll awesome. add uh, Carmen, that the cool thing about the Rumbix platform as well, when you have a smartphone in the hand, is it's you know its primary usage is for data entry, and then a bunch of stuff is available on the web for analysis of all that information coming in. We also do some analysis so folks aren't just dumped with raw data. But the really cool thing is it's also a two-way communication device, so we send. Uh, summaries of progress back down to the folks doing the work. And, and my joke is a lot of time in, in construction, the only feedback most construction workers and foremen are getting right now is they get a paycheck every week and they get yelled at sometimes. It's not a very <laughs> fulfilling environment and this, this provides an opportunity to actually loop them in and engage them from the neck up instead of just treating them like commodities from the neck down. And that fundamentally changes construction too. 
Awesome. I want to talk a little bit about you guys have raised a number of rounds uh, from investors. And a lot of the listeners that we have are typical entrepreneurs. They're people that want to get into uh, a startup, do a startup, and they're really interested uh, about how to raise funds. And you guys have unlocked that clearly. Uh, you, I think you, I read you guys had a D round, and I heard an earlier conversations say you guys raised a, a bunch of other rounds. Um, what do you think in the early stages of your business was? the value that investors saw that enabled them to cut a check to you guys. What do you think that was that, that you were able to get an investor to, to cut you a check in those early days? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, our, our uh, in the early days construction tech was not a, a hot, um, investment category like it is today. Um, so really I, I credit a lot, uh, the investors for having a thesis, you know, folks like Sarah Guo and Jerry Chen at, at Greylock for having a thesis around, uh, construction as a, a, a large uh, market that's ripe for disruption. Um, and, uh, yeah, our earliest investors, um, knew that Drew and I were not technical co-founders, that we were not going to be the people writing the code. And, and there's definitely a risk in that. Could we uh, attract and recruit a quality engineering team to build a software product uh, was, was a big area of risk. But uh, what they liked about us was uh, a deep uh, firsthand knowledge and experience of the problem that we were solving. Um, as well as uh, the the leadership capabilities that come with with being a veteran, and um, you know, um, they said, "Hey, we actually have tons of experience building software companies. Uh, we don't know anything about construction other than it's a, a massive market that's very inefficient and and the lowest level of digitization of, of any industry." And and so, um, really became a, a good kind of hand in glove fit. Uh, combining deep, deep industry expertise and knowledge uh, with the support of, of the venture capital community to help Drew and I build a, a technology company. That's interesting. But you guys were first-time founders. This, you guys didn't have another startup that you had started before. Nope. So <laughs> that's really. that's what I'm really curious because that just doesn't happen in 2018. That's it happened right. in 2013, right? Like that stuff happened before. But what do you think that uh, the thing that made you guys the attractable the the attractive entity that said these guys have never started a startup? They're in Stanford Business School. They know construction. They don't have a technical team behind them. I'm still going to cut them a check. Yeah, that the summer of 2014, when we raised our, our first seed round, um, you know, we we are the investors that showed early interest said I need to see something more than just a PowerPoint deck. And so um, two of our first employees, um, Jonathan Goncalves, who's a, a Air Force uh, veteran as well. Um, and uh, his, his cousin Gustavo was my, my TA for a class I took at, at Stanford. He was finished up his PhD and uh, was working for us for free that summer. Um, and um, we actually were, were hooking up uh, Samsung Gear Live watches on construction workers on a project at, at Stanford's campus. And we're collecting accelerometer data off of them um, and combining that with the GPS breadcrumb uh, of, of where they traveled throughout the day and building heat maps, uh, showing uh, time and motion studies. And so, um, you know, we, we were, we, we're required to show, you know, some degree of ability to, um, uh, you know, to have the technical capabilities to do what we were uh, laying out was our, our plan of attack, which was when we were still targeting wearables as, as the business model. And um, so, yeah, we, we had to find the people to, you know, write the, the first lines of code to be able to, you know, get some data off the workers and, 
it was really them going, okay, well, these guys have shown an ability to get a bunch of big, grizzly, salty construction workers to put uh, wearables on their wrists every day and track their location for three straight months. There must be something here. Uh, I'm willing to, you know, cut a nominal check uh, to, to see what they do in the next year with some funding behind them. That's incredible. It yeah, is. like I said, it doesn't happen anymore. You, you I mean, the, the thing I tell we, you know, we run a, an accelerator program for startups, and the thing I tell startup founders, especially first-time startup founders, is that if you are looking to find money from investors, the only metric you care about is how many customers do I have and how much are they paying me. That's it. That's mm-hmm. it. And so to, I, don't know, I actually, Josh, I actually disagree. Yeah, I think it does happen a lot. Still, it's it's a little. It's obviously harder. Yeah, but. You know, the biggest piece, and, and I think, you know, we gloss over, and when you look at our fundraising history, you could you could maybe assume these guys have it all figured out, but we have talked to hundreds of people and heard no hundreds of times, and some people still don't get it. And I think the yeah. biggest thing, if I could rewind it, was I would have just been more confident in our vision in the beginning. Like, we were obviously confident we had quit jobs and turned down opportunities. We were confident, but right when, you, when you're a first-time founder, first pitching, first hearing that no, it can be soul-crushing at times, but that conviction around, and I think we had it still in spades, but, but could have even been stronger around it, was like not doubting what you're doing. If you have conviction around the value, you're just obviously making sure it's a big enough um, opportunity. And, and in many ways, the sort of audacity of it is important. You got to think big and you got to aspire big and be confident in it. And then you got to, as Zach pointed out, show some traction and some ability to execute. But I think the in, implicit in there is that a lot of founders, the reason it's, it's potentially harder is because you know, you hear a few no's and you get discouraged and it's never going to happen. Um, and so that level of commitment and conviction is is huge and it's, it's a hard thing to fake. <laughs> uh, and so you really have to have it. And this has to be something that you are committed to. And I know, you know, folks talk about the risk of startups. Yeah. And I think a lot of startup founders, when you look at the very top of the funnel of people starting companies, don't actually internalize everything that it takes and you know i think for us candidly we we knew it was risky we knew the likelihood of us being sitting here right now and talking to you a podcast about this company that raised a lot of money was super low yeah right but we had conviction around the fact that if we did this and if we made it at least a year we were going to actually have exposed ourselves and learned so much about a really important thing that we were already passionate about and the opportunities on the back end were going to be better than they were on the front end. And so when you do that, you can dive in headlong and head first when you assign a value to that learning. But if you're only motivated by the market opportunity and the potential financial outcome, it's a lot easier to throw in the towel when you get sure. A lot of nose. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm curious, though, how much of that opinion do you think weighs into geography? In other words, do you think it's easier for first-time founders with conviction and a strong confidence in their in their platform to get funding from the say the Bay Area or other large tech hubs, um, be- just because of the fact that it, it there's a lot more deal flow in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bay Area is definitely unique in that respect, um, where, um, you know, 
the Bay Area and the venture capital was, was born was out of um, a very risky bet on a small likelihood outcome opportunity. And, and so um, there is more cash, there's more deal flow, but um, there's also more people that are um, willing to bet on that massive upside in, in a, a very early and like in our case, pre-product company. Um, and I know that um, I've gone and I've spoken at Bunker Labs in Chicago and other cities mm-hmm. and, and the, the investors definitely are closer to what I would consider a, an early stage private equity investor in yeah. terms of what they're looking for and, and traction. And so I, I definitely think Silicon Valley uh, is, is unique in that. Uh, and, and that's kind of part of what makes it so special. And, you know, the opportunity for uh, two veterans with six figure debt to uh, <laughs> to start a company. <laughs> I love it. We've been talking to Zach and uh, Drew from Rumbix. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Ruby Reception. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionist here in Portland, actually. You may not realize it, but you already have the one thing that sets your business apart, a phone. You know, for small businesses like yours, nothing is more valuable than real human interaction. It's why two out of three mobile web searches for those ready to buy in a phone call to just start business. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up. Or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100. Use promo code StartupRuby and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. I can't believe those guys. They're amazing, first of all. They're in Portland. They're a local company, and uh, I've used them in the past. They're phenomenal. They're amazing. Great to know. So I had a question because you have several products here. And then you had mentioned earlier that this your product is really meant for large construction. Uh, so what would large construction be? Say uh, there was a contractor who was going to build a school. Is that too small? Uh, it really just depends. Our, our ideal customer profile is typically somebody who employs more than 100 craft workers in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, depending on the size of the school, you could have a, you know, a mechanical, electrical piping company, uh, doing work on that project and they would absolutely use our, our products. Um, you know, I think our smallest customer has around, um, you know, 20 seat licenses. Our largest has 7,000. Um, so, um, we, we sell, uh, we don't target the, the, the smaller end, uh, the SMB anymore. And it's more of a, a mid-market and enterprise products, uh, with most of our customers having around 500 to 700 uh, craft workers on average on, on the system. Awesome. What are some of the use cases, aside from construction, that you think Roombix would be a good fit for maybe five, ten years down the future? Yeah, construction's an $11 trillion global industry right now. So you're good. Uh, you're good. $11 yeah, trillion. Right. You just want a small slice of that, and you're good. yeah like seriously it's you know there's a reason technology hasn't penetrated construction uh it's very fragmented it's very insulated it's very legacy software um uh and then it's a a massive untapped industry so we we could spend the next five to ten years building additional product lines in the space and i don't think we'd run out of any uh, amount of addressable market for ourselves no i do think though to your question is like at the end of the day, though, as much as we're not looking outside construction, it won't for a while, right? We have, in many ways, led the charge for a really compelling software for 
the deskless worker, right? There's nobody as deskless as a construction worker, as far as I can tell, um, in a pretty dynamic, tough environment. And so what I think we've done, as much as construction is our focus, is realize that there are big opportunities um, there and there, and, and software is finally accessible at those different levels. So we're good with construction, but it just shows <laughs> that there's, you know, for the veterans out there, right? I think a lot of veterans have a lot more relevant experience to deskless workers than workers in cubicles being spreadsheet jockeys. And so if that makes sense, then there's a lot of opportunity if you can solve that. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a great tip. We have about 10 minutes left. And I want to go into sort of lessons learned. You know, you guys talk a lot about this this great platform and how you got here and the seemingly effortless Roller coaster ride that you guys have been on. Uh, talk about some. I of don't the- think anyone said effortless. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> I jest, but no. I mean, you guys make it look so fucking easy. But anyway, what I'm saying is, uh, you know, what are some of the things that you guys learned along the way that you went? We're not going to fuck that up again. <laughs> um, yeah, no. I, I, I think you know a, a couple that are, are easy, uh, kind of right off the bat. As like the first one's like know when to trust your gut. I think early on, um, there was some decisions that we fretted over, like a couple around headcount, and you know, one of our um, uh, early early board director and uh, company advisors, Chuck Holloway, um, professor of the business school, but also uh, another Navy veteran. You know, we were meeting with him and he was like, Drew, Zach, sounds like you just need to get rid of this guy. <laughs> it was just kind of clear as day. And, you know, we'd been all concerned about, oh, well, you know, this other person recommended him to us and that person we respect. And, and we're worried about, you know, stepping on toes. And, um, and but at the end of the day, it was a decision that, you know, we had felt in our guts from the get go. Um, and, and so it took us a while to really learn um, to know when to trust our gut. Um, and then the, con- the converse of that is no one to ask for help. Um, I remember early on we were working on a joint development agreement with Bechtel. Um, and I'd spent a ton of time, uh, you know, drafting and revising the, the terms of this agreement. And um, I sent it over to my lawyers to, to review and they were like, oh, this is really good, Zach. Do you know this is what you pay us to do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> she was like, if, if you were one of my first year uh, law student interns, I would have given you a gold star. This is this is great work. Uh, and uh, so that was. And then they tore it apart. Then you paid for it anyway. Anyway. Yeah, good, good lesson learned about, you know, wh- where to delegate and, 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 you know, how to, how to maximize your time as a founder, which, which I think is one of the most important things to, to master. Yeah, no, totally. And then the, the other question I had was, what do you think in your military careers, both of you, I'd love to hear both your insight on this. What do you think you took away from your military careers that set the stage for you to be a, a founder? Mm-hmm. Good question. I mean, and, uh, it's a thing that we talk about a lot here, especially Zach and I are involved in a lot of different veteran initiatives, nonprofit, professional, because uh, we, we realize we have been fortunate in many ways. Um, but it's the basics, right? Can you assemble a team? Can you motivate them towards a goal? Can you get them through the tough times? We learned a lot of that in the military. I think the, the thing that I point to a lot of times that's specifically unique to being a startup founder when you're probably not making as much money as your peers and you're dealing with a lot more stuff is that, you know, when you spent 
uh, months at a time stuck underwater uh, in the middle of nowhere on a submarine or stuck in the desert of Djibouti with birds falling out of the sky because of heat exhaustion. <laughs> um, there's nothing that can happen here in San Francisco that's going to phase us, right? Life right. is good. And mm-hmm. that's a good thing to um, really keep in perspective. We have a great company of people and, and we're building software and we're getting out there on construction sites and really changing an industry. And the most stressful thing is not a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, I'm at your website and um, I saw a picture here with these cute dogs. So it looks <laughs> it looks it looks like you you uh, have some You've dogs. You've hired that, the right people. Uh, so you got my heart. You got my heart there. I'm a dog lover. Zach, what do you think was the thing that set you up uh, the best for uh, from your military into your entrepreneurial life? Yeah, and no, I mean, I think there's there's probably you know ten to a hundred things I I could uh, elaborate on. Um, I think one of the important skills that you don't kind of explicitly, but more implicitly learn um, in the in the in the military is you know how to harness the power of intrinsic motivation. Um, you know, as far as extrinsic motivation of your troops, um, you, you can recommend them for awards. They can get another piece of fabric on their chest. Um, you know, maybe you can give them a 96 hour chit, you know, at, at most two days off, but you don't really get to promote them. You can't really get them pay raises or anything like that. So you, uh, got to be creative about finding ways to get people to want to do work, even if it's not really the work that they want to do. Sure. Um, and, and oftentimes these are people that are underpaid and overworked. Um, and, and so I think kind of that experience, you know, really is very transferable to an early stage startup where you need to set a, a mission and a vision, um, you know, that, that everyone in the company understands, um, you know, can, and can relate with on, on some personal level to, to be able to drive that intrinsic motivation among your employees to, to do, you know, what's needed. Anyone in our company could, could pack up and quit and throw in the towel if they want, but they don't. Uh, they come in week after week, day after day, and they, they give us good, solid, hard work because they all are, are going towards that same goal. And so, you know, I think that's one kind of, um, you know, um, thing that comes out of the, the nature of the military and, and the fact that we can't, you know, promote on the spot. We can't give pay raises. Um, you know, we've got to find uh, a lot more creative ways. And, you know, I think some of that, you know, and me personally, what I, I learned was a lot of times, you know, it's like don't lead um, – Troops won't lead you if they don't believe that uh, you're willing to do the work you're asking them to do yourself. Uh, and, and so, you know, Drew and I will take out the trash and the trash can's full around the office. You know, it's something simple and mundane, but, um, you know, if you want other people to take out the trash when it's full, all you gotta do is make an announcement that, hey, everyone should take out the trash when it's full and then watch somebody put a piece of trash in a full trash can and then I'll walk up right next to them and pull it out and take it outside and know that the next time that that worker is going to take the trash out when they're trying to, you know, stack something on top of a full trash can. I love it. I love it too. Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful. Good stuff. Where can people find your uh, your company? Where, where can people find you guys? Yeah, just go to rumbix.com. That's R-H-U-M-B-I-X.com. Yeah. So we've been talking to Zach and Drew of Rumbix. Thank you guys so much. Thank Is there any you. other parting words you want to uh, impart on our listeners? I, I think that's all from my side. I really enjoyed the uh, the opportunity. And, um, yeah, no, I, I'd encourage just any, any veteran that's out there considering entrepreneurship. Um, 
if your heart's not 100 percent in it you're likely going to fail uh but it's an extremely rewarding career path uh and and um you know um you, you just learn a ton um doing something that that you don't know and and uh but the only way is just get out there and get after it and uh not be too concerned about what what failure looks like that'll hold you back Thank you, Zach and Drew. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you on as guests today. You've been listening to Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Listen, learn, and get inspired. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.